I'ma read that bitch. I'ma school that bitch. I'ma take that bitch to college. I'ma give that bitch some knowledge. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma school that bitch. I'ma take that bitch to college. I'ma give that bitch some knowledge. I'ma read, I'ma read, I'ma read. I'ma read, I'ma read, I'ma read. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma take that bitch to college. I'ma give that bitch some knowledge. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read, I'ma read, I'ma read. I'ma read, I'ma read, I'ma read. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read, I'ma read, I'ma read. 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 I don't like that bitch. Proofread that bitch. Proofread that bitch. Hello, dear listeners. I think I'd rather call you dear readers. Because one, I just love the phrase dear readers. I just think it's great. But two, I always considered audiobooks to be the same as, or to count as significant as reading a book. You're still getting the experience of the story. Um, I know that for instance, when a lot of people give disclaimers when they've listened to an audio book versus reading the book, oh, oh, no, no, I didn't read it. I just listened to the audio version. Sure, that's a different experience. Maybe you didn't invest that time the same way because maybe with an audio book, you're multitasking perhaps. But you still experienced the story and the benefits of enriching yourself and exposing yourself to different stories and themes and what's happening um, outside of your scope of experience. So kudos to you for continuing to read. You are a reader, even by listening to this shitty podcast. So thank you for joining again, dear readers. We're going to continue on, actually. I thought I perhaps had finished up chapter one, but I hadn't. Um, chapter one, which continues the journals of uh, wh- whom is named as Thomas um, Harker. Yeah, Thomas Harker here in the Makhmirkana version of Dracula, as opposed to Jonathan Harker. Um, we have... Good. We got a good number of pages actually before finishing up chapter one. Surprisingly long chapter because the rest of the chapters of the book are pretty short. So we'll just continue on as far as we can get through about half, maybe a half hour. Um, And I wanted to kind of set some things straight regarding the some of the things I said in the last episode. One, I stated that the the differences, some of the differences mentioned here were mentioned between this adaptation and the original were how I'm having a hard time with words this morning. I, I'm I'm actually recording early in the morning because I just couldn't sleep. Planning on going back to bed in a second here, so 
trying to do this podcast completely raw dog sober in the morning hours, which is not my my prime prime real estate time for me to be able to communicate. So we're, we're trying to get through this, but at least at least I'm reading. At least I'm kind of doing something productive, right? Pat on the back to me for that. Um, thank you. So I mentioned that there was a emphasis placed in this new adaptation on Dracula being more about, I think that they quoted it as more about world domination, more about taking over the Western world, things like that. And I said that was in in contrast to maybe Bram Stoker's version, which had more of a emphasis on on personal conquest, Um, definitely emphasize a lot of time and the personal conquest of visiting Lucy multiple times, of um, keeping Jonathan as a Jonathan Harker as a prisoner, um, but I also mentioned Mina's name there, and I think I might have been getting my wires crossed between the emphasis that uh, Francis Ford Coppola's adaptation film adaptation of Dracula had on Dracula's time and invested in the personal conquest of Mina. Um, Whereas I think that there is a progressive enhancement in how large in scope Dracula has between Bram Stoker's version to this Icelandic adaptation, um, between, let's say, petty personal conquest of individuals towards maybe larger in scope conquest of the entire city of London or the entire Western world or what have you. Um, uh, I think none of the, the, the written versions have the same scope as Francis Ford Coppola's, which is a complete revisionist adaptation of it more as a love story. The lost love, the reincarnation of Dracula's former lover before he became Dracula, before he became a vampire, um, is completely rewritten by the screenplay um, writer for the 1992 Francis Ford Coppola version, which his name, I believe, is named James or Jim. Sometimes he goes by Hunt, uh, or sometimes he goes by J.V. Hunt. Excuse me, my dogs are barking on a pause it. J.V. Hunt um, has done a number of adaptations of classic literature, such as he was really famous for doing um, Hook, uh, the film that revised the story uh, in the contemporary times of Peter Pan, Peter Pan All Grown Up, which was an excellent kids movie. Um, and so he seems to excel in this kind of like uh, um, high budget fan fiction, right? Uh, and I would say that as much as I personally love Bram Stoker's Dracula, uh, and I'll get into the history of that in a moment, um, what James Hunt did and through the eyes of Francis Ford Coppola for the for Dracula's story um, is f- actually far superior to Bram Stoker's. Um, it seems that there is a common theme 
of this Dracula being a bad guy within these literature adaptations uh, and these large-scale conquests that are kind of impersonal and not as sympathetic to the background story or the motivations of Dracula as uh, a man who was once human. Um, he's much more depicted as as a monster who um, just would like to, who has evil motivations and would like to have conquest in these, in these literature versions. Um, whereas I think that the J.V. Hunt and Francis Ford Coppola version uh, really emphasized him as a human who has all of the same weaknesses and desires and loneliness um, as anyone would. Um, and though he has become a monster um, through no real, real fault of his own, that in their version he has made a monster, um, I believe by God, um, as he because he renounces God um, and purposefully gives himself over to Satan because of his anger at God and the church for not um, taking his wife, Elisabetta, to heaven because of her suicide. Um, so it's a very, very human story of like, how any human would be angry at their faith if their faith did not kind of um, provide their loved ones with a comfortable afterlife, um, especially the enduring love story that they're trying to tell in that adaptation. Um, and this Dracula in, in Bram Stoker's version um, and in Osmondson's version is much more of a metaphor than a human being. He is a metaphor for the idea of... Hold on, pause again. My dogs are just on fire today, just really excited to bark at every single thing that passes by the house. But the metaphor of um, the fear of foreign conquest. So, um, you know, there has been a lot of uh, British conquest of territories uh, in the past. And so um, during that, this time, there's a lot of scholars that believe that what Bram Stoker was trying to to insinuate is that there was also a fear that there will be retribution from these Eastern um, and other foreign entities um, that as they migrated back into or, or into Britain um, as after the, the years passed of their colonies have been con uh, under conquest and siege by Britain, um, that there would be bitterness and a sense of revenge or retribution. And so there was this subconscious uh, and very overt, um, if, you, if you count in uh, just, just fear of the other and, fear and, and general racism, um, of other territories coming in and migration. So this metaphor of Dracula being from a very Eastern and misun or not, not well understood land like Transylvania um, and painting him as one of foreign customs that's not easily understood. Um, someone who is trying to literally uh, have 
conquest or siege over London and victimize its people. Um, someone who um, yeah, it's basically just a, a total metaphor of that, that fear of the other, that fear of the foreigner. Um, and so as we read on the continuing through chapter one, you've already seen a little bit of it from last chapter of this, how he, Jonathan Harker goes above and beyond to call um, the people that he sees on the trains on his way to Transylvania as queer, as having quaint customs uh, that are unlike his own, weird haircuts, weird clothing styles, just kind of overemphasizing the differences between me as a modern person versus the, the tradition and culture of other lands. Uh, and I think there has to be some sort of tongue-in-cheek um, to all of this, and especially in Bram Stoker's version, um, the way that he sort of makes, I think, Jonathan seem sort of um, ridiculous in, in the way that he is talking down about these people, um, uh, saying such superficial things as, well, their haircuts are so quaint and silly. Um, and he just certainly doesn't sound charming or educated or respectable. Um, so, yeah, that, that's my take on that, is that I think it's a, a, fan, it's a very interesting metaphor. However, uh, I will say that some of these adaptations from what I've read so far, and I haven't even gotten into this, this version yet, um, have maybe swung that pendulum a bit darker. Uh, and so instead of maybe making, poking a little bit tongue in cheek at the idea of foreign fear, um, making the foreign fear a bit more real. And so that saying that Dracula is an actual threat and that he might even be a representation of things that you should be scared of. Uh, one example of that is that I just found out last night after recording yesterday's episode um, that after the publication of this retranslation of the, or the Icelandic translation into English, this was published in 2014, um, scholars continued to research this and discovered that this is an, not an adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula so much as Makmirkana is an adaptation of a Swedish version um, what's in their language was also called Powers of Darkness um, and had very more, it's more similarities between this Icelandic version to the Swedish adaptation than there are between the Icelandic version and Bram Stoker's. Um, the main differences are that they probably both took inspiration from different parts of Bram, from Bram Stoker than from Dracula itself, meaning the Swedish version more closely resembles one of Bram Stoker's short stories called, I believe it's called The House Guest or something along that, those lines, and whereas this Icelandic version more closely resembles Bram's preliminary unpublished notes. So um, another theory that's out there is that possibly Bram was visiting with these different authors, um, selling the the rights to to translate his work for his own money. Because, as again, he didn't necessarily 
uh, get copyright done uh, the, the, the right way um, to the world's benefit and to his own. Um, when he did publish in 1897, uh, the way the publishing contract was written was that uh, all rights were held within UK. And so um, Bram had the right to go off and sell his work outside of UK as he, as he so well pleased, including selling rights for adaptations like this. So um, perhaps maybe he was making some money. Perhaps maybe he was just making friends and connections in the literary world globally. Um, perhaps maybe he was uh, finding it as an interesting excuse to be able to um, to continue to revise his own work uh, through through collaborating with other authors um, and saying, hmm, I wonder if what would happen if I had done it this way, according to my previous notes, or if I had done it closer to one of these story adaptations I had in the past. Um, so getting back to my point, the Swedish adaptation, apparently, which I have not read, but what I read about it is that the version of Dracula is essentially a terrifying fascist uh, who wants to you know have conquest over London and its people um, and all people of all humanity um, because humanity is a lower species of being than his superior species of being as a vampire. Um, a direct metaphor towards uh, just basically the the fear uh, uh, and of fascism and racism in general. Uh, there was some things happening in history of that time regarding um, uh, the superior race was already starting to float around. This is you know thirty years prior to World War II, but um, just different philosophies, and especially the more I learn about these sort of um, Nordic nations, uh, I'm, I'm always kind of shocked as to the history of racism there, um, that, that pure Aryan bloodline type of philosophy. Um, I think <laughs> sometimes in, in modern day depictions of of Sweden or Norway or, or, or different areas in that region, um, we see these smiley-faced um, blondes with braids and we we hear about how they're, some of the research studies have shown they're the happiest nations with the best health care and, and great family units, um, lots of days off of work and it seems like this idyllic place. Um, however, it's quite disturbing to learn <laughs> that, yeah, these there's some stone-cold racist there as well, and there have been for many, many years. So, all right, let's get to reading. We're already 18 minutes in, so I've been babbling on and on. <clears throat> Continuing chapter one of Mokhtamirkrana, Powers of Darkness, uh, Jonathan Harker's journal, I'm sorry, Thomas Harker's journal, May 4th. I couldn't sleep last night as I would have needed to after such a trip because it was as if all the town's dogs had agreed to meet under my window and howl, letting all hell break loose. Eventually I became so tired that sleep overcame me, 
but I awoke shortly thereafter when I heard something scratch at the window. I raised the curtain and saw that a bat had landed on the windowsill, but it flew away after I flew away just as I approached it. Whoa. Let's get into that bat. Dracula. So anyhow, this is a uh, an obvious reference to Dracula transforming as he can into different creatures, uh, including bats, and he can transform into mist, and he can transform into to a wolf, he can transform into all different things. Um, so Dracula is very closely uh, monitoring Harker's journey into Transylvania. As we've already seen, he's made all the arrangements um, for all of the carriage rides, all the hotel stays along the way. Um, he's making sure that Jonathan Harker, Thomas Harker, doesn't back out of this. Um, he's making sure and just keeping his eye on him that uh, his meal comes home. He's just like, he's got that Domino's delivery tracker app, you know, and he's like, uh, I just want to see where you're at, bro. I just want to see if that's hot, fresh, and ready. So the barking and howling were no better than before, so I couldn't peacefully sleep again before dawn. When we sat down for breakfast, the hotel owner told me he had received a letter from the count requesting he see to it that I get to the best seat in the carriage. He had included money for the ticket, too. I tried to ask the owner and his wife about the count, but they were more than reluctant to tell me anything about him, except that he was rich, or was said to be rich, and that they had only seen him in passing, before he, but he rarely came into town, and so on. To be honest, I barely understood the poor German they spoke. These stupid poor people with their stupid, they don't even know fucking how to speak right. God. When I told them about the barking dogs and the bat, I noticed that they glanced at each other and crossed themselves furiously. Superstition is deeply rooted in this country and I regret not being able to learn more about these people and their way of thinking. It would be interesting to explore the simplified simple-minded beliefs that are so alive around here. Although modern people, like myself, would just call them old wives' tales as they are remnants of pagan thinking attesting to the customs of a bygone era. Okay, if that's not tongue-in-cheek condescension, I don't know what is. Um, but it really reminds me this quote he says there about um, I would be interested to explore these simple-minded beliefs that are so alive around here, although modern people like myself would just call them old wives' tales. Uh, reminds me of the kind of tongue-in-cheek exploration of the, the, the downsides of these um, anthropologists that were dissected in the film Midsommar. Um, the condescension, the the lack of privacy and respect, the um, I'm going to dissect you as if you are not a living, breathing human anymore, but more just a, a case study for me because I am obviously the superior researcher here and you are something to be marveled at um, because due to your otherness. And so yeah, I definitely see there had to have been something in Stoker's perspective that was 
kind of wagging his finger at Jonathan Harker, saying, come on, bro. I mean, human beings don't talk about human beings that way. Later on, I met a Saxon teacher who spent part of the day showing me the town. When I asked him about Count Dracula, he was surprised to hear that I was going to meet the Count and stay with him for a fortnight, because, he told me, the Count was known to live in seclusion, avoiding all people, and never had he heard of the Count inviting anyone to his home. There will certainly be many stories about him, I said, as men tend to taunt those who don't tie their bundles the same way as their fellow travelers. Well, that's a cute little quote. I like that. He said it was true that much was rumored about the Count, but so reasonable person, but no reasonable person would put trust in such blathering. Other than that, he had nothing to say about the Count, except that he was born of the greatest and oldest family in the country, of which, due to the innate qualities of their kin, the men were the bravest and the women the most beautiful throughout the centuries and the subjects of poetic lore. He didn't know whether the Count had children, but he had been married three times and had lost all of his wives. When I returned to the Grest guest house to prepare for my departure, the landlady, who seemed very distressed, came to me and said, Are you seriously going? She was so upset that she completely forgot what little German she knew and jabbered away in another language of which I didn't understand a single word. When I told her that I had to go because I had an important business deal to finalize, she stared at me before asking solemn, solemnly, Then you don't know what day it is today? I said that it was the 4th of May, as it was, but she shook her head saying, Yes, I know, that too, but do you know what kind of day it is? I had to tell her that I didn't understand her point, at which she answered me with urgency saying, but what part of the world are you from, you poor young man, that you don't know it is the eve of St. George's Day, when all the evil spirits are at large? And now she crossed herself. Do you know where you are going and what could happen to you there? Believe an old lady who wishes you well. Don't depart until morning. It's a sin to tempt God and to throw yourself into perdition. Tears streamed down her cheeks, and in an instant she was down on her knees, gesticulating before me and begging me in the name of the Holy, Holy Virgin Mary and a number of other holy men whose saintly deeds I am actually not familiar with, not to leave within the next two days. To tell the truth, I was beginning to feel uncomfortable while she carried on like this, but I don't believe in such prattle, of course. I got her to stand up, wiped her tears, and then told her sternly that I had to go. It was my duty. When she got a hold of herself, she took a rosary from her bosom and handed it to me. I didn't know what to do. Like any English churchman, I have been taught disdain for such holy toys since childhood, but I didn't want to offend this dear old woman. When she saw that I was wavering, she ended her discussion by putting the rosary around my neck, and with a quivering voice she said, Do it for your mother's sake. Having said this, she left. Superstition is contagious like the plague. I do not feel well. I have now been writing this to compose myself while I wait for the mail coach as it is delayed. It vexes me that the Count's horses would ha will have to wait too. I will now write a letter to my Wilma, which will probably surprise her. So Wilma is the name of Mina in this adaptation. Um, that was just a fascinating page. The The again the kind of the condescension of 
Uh, she's prattling on. Um, I have disdain for such holy toys since childhood. Now, granted, dear reader, I myself am an atheist, um, so I also consider those to be um, holy toys. That being said, um, I do believe that there is a underlying theme and message to Dracula that likes to demonstrate that not everything can be known through a diplomatic, uh, secularized, um, scientific view. That there are some mysterious things in the world, um, be they religious or not. I know that the, the underlying theme of Dracula is that there is a kind of war between good and evil and God and the devil, and that there is more of a demonic um, underlying mm, creation myth to, to Dracula that's being implied. Um, but that, I believe that the whole point of why Dracula is so hard to kill in the beginning of the book or, or towards the middle end of the book is because there is such a, uh, a confusion and row about what is wrong with Lucy. Um, even though uh, from a viewer or reader's account, it seems pretty obvious. I mean, yeah, she's losing blood. That's why she's so weak and she uh, is growing things because she's growing into a vampire, blah, blah, but it takes them forever to figure out, they're like giving her blood transfusions, like what could be wrong? And it's just like, it's right in your face, you idiot. It's obviously vampirism. But of course, you wouldn't, <laughs> you wouldn't see that if you're looking at it through a secular scientific lens. You would see that as folklore, you'd see that as, as legend, you'd see that as not real, and it wouldn't um, be on your list of things. And so the think the point there is that we, by that society might be limiting themselves in some ways by having a short-sighted view and only having a list of criteria that they can pull upon when analyzing the situation and that maybe being open-minded in all situations of, of all facts and as Van Helsing goes on to say um, looking at the the historical context even going into other cultures right so let's not look at our medical books from London but also what are the the uh, historical uh, and as he says here pagan books of folklore from from Transylvania do those have any clues and in the end they did and that's what led Van Helsing to um, putting pinpointing the kind of story between uh, Dracula as a vampire in modern day, it, it kind of reminds me of a, a recent sort of crisis that I've been having in which um, I seem to have some kind of overuse injury of my arm right now. I, I don't, it's diagnosed as simple tennis elbow, but um, that almost seems too banal on the surface level for me because that, that those words that just makes it sound like, oh, you moved your darn elbow too much and now it kind of aches a little bit. But um, this is literally severely 
limited my mobility. I can't straighten my arm at all. Um, I've lost the ability to pick things up with that arm. I've lost the ability to um, to type sometimes or to rotate my arm fully sometimes. And some of these characteristics that are coming up are not necessarily textbook to tennis elbow. Um, even though I've been to, uh, the past week, seven different doctor's appointments um, and had blood test MRIs and x-rays, um, this is the conclusion that they've come up with. Um, and that's all fine and good because, you know, we know the human body is complex and not everything has to be textbook. But uh, an example that came up that was kind of disconcerting to me is that I was yesterday in particular losing mobility in my middle two fingers of that arm. Um, I was focusing on trying to bend them uh, upward. They were kind of curled inward and straighten them out. And uh, I was literally staring at them in earnestness and could not straighten my fingers. I could straighten my thumb, my forefinger, my pinky, but those two fingers in the middle, I could not, it, it was, it took me like a full minute of slow concentration to fully straighten those fingers. And so I called back the specialist I went to and said, hey, this seems like an alarming sign. And I got a call back uh, response from them saying, mm, no, that's not normal. That's not textbook tennis elbow and that shouldn't be happening with tennis elbow nor is it really a side effect of the treatment that we gave you. So um, we don't really, it's almost like they were implying, we don't think it's happening. <laughs> and they said like, if it's still happening, call us back next week and we'll look at it then. But no, that shouldn't be happening. It's like, well, no, it is happening. I'm not lying. Um, it's this, and that reminded me of this, of this concept of, you get so deep into the books of science and medicine that if it's not on the checklist, then it almost doesn't exist and you shut down your thought process and you stop looking. Um, that's also just as ridiculous. That type of, of closed-mindedness is just as ridiculous as a um, religious, uh, pagan simple-minded fever or what have you that, that, they, that Thomas Harker was making fun of. Um, so both sides of the coin and need to be open-minded and need to think outside the box, right? Oh, anyhow. Um, so now the next section of his journal entry, it looks like he is arriving, going to be arriving soon at Castle Dracula. We're at May 5th in the morning. It's broad daylight outside and it's four o'clock in the morning. I haven't gone to bed yet, but I am wide awake. I wouldn't be able to sleep now, so I might as well write instead, as the Count has said that I can rest as long as I want after my travels. When I stepped into the mail coach that was to take me to the Bargo Pass, the driver had not yet to come to his seat as he was palavering with the landlady and some of the other, other villagers. It seemed as though the people were talking about me and they were looking at me with expressions of surprise and compassion. As I only caught a few scattered words, I took my dictionary out of my pocket and looked up the ones that I could make out best. 
They were not very pleasant. Words such as devil, hell, monster, and other such nice expressions were thrown around, and I suspected they were related to my prospective host, the Count. When we departed, a crowd of people had gathered at the guest house, making the sign of the cross with two outstretched fingers and pointing to me, who, innocent as a child, had done nothing wrong. I asked one of my fellow travelers who spoke German the reason for this, and he said that the people meant to do me no harm. Quite the contrary, they meant me well and were praying for me. Then the coachman struck the horses and, and I soon forgot all their blessings and ill forebodings as I began to watch the scenery. The hills spread out before us, everywhere grassy and wooded, and on the slopes we saw farms with their windowless gables facing the road. Along the, the coach route, which lay in countless curves between the hillocks, I noticed an apple tree in bloom and many other fruit trees. The driver maneuvered the horses as if his life depended on it, over rocks and through potholes. Road repairs, which are always to be done in spring, hadn't yet been made, leaving the tracks in bad condition. Beyond the hills, the rocky peaks of the Carpathians towered over the dark woods. They were soon surrounding us, glowing in the sunlight with the richest of colors, while in the distance we could discern blue-white glaciers. We came across farmers in motley attire, and I witnessed many sights I have never seen before, such as haystacks being put up in the treetops to dry. With darkness drawing near, it was getting much colder. We even caught glimpse of snow in the ravines and passes. Sometimes the road was so steep that I wanted to get out and walk, as we would in England, but the driver flatly refused, saying, no, by all means, do not step out of the carriage. It's not safe here, wild dogs. And so, except for when we turned on the carriage lights, he didn't stop once. The darker it became, the greater the apprehension that seemed to engulf my travel companions as they spoke to the coachman, and from what I understood, they were asking him to make haste, which he did, brutally snapping his whip at the horses like the worst butcher and whistling very high from time to time, hurrying them on even more. What's funny to me is that my first instinct <laughs> uh, reading that is, I'm supposed to be like scared because of the wild dogs and everything, but like my first instinct is, well, how the fuck did they pee if he never stopped? Okay, moving on. Suddenly the sky cleared ahead of us, as if the mountains had opened up, and yet became even steeper on both sides. My fellow travelers now became even more tense than they already were. The road was better here, and the ride continued at an even more tearing pace than before, such that I had to hold myself in order not to be thrown around in the carriage. I am no coward, but it seemed crazy to rush on like this in the dark. I was then told that we were galloping up the Borgo Pass, and as if to make this event more ceremonious, my travel companions started giving me odd gifts, such as rose tree branches, rowan twigs, white flowers, crucifixes, and other small trinkets. I didn't have the heart to refuse them, but little by little, I tried to get the rid of most of them, as I could not see how they would be of any use to me. I did, however, understand that they were meant to protect me against the attacks and cunning tricks of the evil one. The carriage rushed forward with the same breakneck speed as before, and all the while my companions wriggled through their seats as if on hot coals, looking around us in all directions, which eventually made me nervous as well. 
I asked them if, they were in, if there was anything to fear, but they answered me in some balderdash or muttered phrases I didn't understand. As the road began to descend from the pass, the driver pulled on the reins and we stopped. Although it was still behind the mountains, the moon had risen, illuminating our surroundings. I started to worry whether or not the Count had even sent his carriage for me, as the coachman insisted that no one would come. He advised to go back to the village with him and to return tomorrow or some other day. The coachman just wants to book it the fuck out of there. While we were discussing this, the horses became skittish and began to prick their ears, whinnying and rearing, and the coachman struggled to keep hold of them. My companions shouted, called for the saints, crossed themselves, and grabbed their crucifixes. In the midst of this chaos, an antiquated caleche drawn by four splendid pitch-black stallions drove up to us. So caleche is just a fancy word for carriage. Their harnesses were adorned with silver and seemed as though they were belonging to a history museum rather than those magnificent animals. The driver was tall and had a large black beard. He was not in uniform, but in some sort of national dress and wore a wide-brimmed felt hat on his head so that only the lower part of his face was visible. I noticed, however, that his eyes seemed red in the lamplight. That's not a good sign. I have seen such eyes on other people, but it always makes an eerie impression. As I are, when when did he see these eyes in other people? Like red eyes are a common thing that you see. No, that's not. Maybe the whites of your eyes being red. Um, but I don't know. As I already felt rather beat up after the tiresome journey in conversation with my companions, I would have preferred this new escort of mine to be less peculiar. You have been traveling fast this evening, my friend, the stranger said to our driver in German. The English gentleman was in a hurry. And so you have advised him to return with you. I hear well, and I am not easily fooled. Besides, I have swift horses. He laughed out loud so that his teeth shone white as snow. Give me the luggage of the gracious Lord, he said, and with the help of all my travel companions, my baggage was transferred to the other carriage in the wink of an eye. Then I stepped out of the mail coach and the driver lifted me up into the caleche. So that's that great scene in Francis Ford Coppola's version where the, the coachman takes, extends his long like go-go gadget arm and just seems to lift Keanu Reeves into the air and just glide him into the, to the carriage. It's just amazing. Rather forcefully, in an instant, the man got in his seat and grabbed hold of the reins, and we dashed off. I looked back and saw that my fellow travelers had stepped out of the carriage to see us better, still crossing themselves. When we were out of sight, some sort of horror struck me, and I felt all alone, as if I had left the civilized world and entered a realm of darkness where anything could happen. The superstitions of my companions had unduly impacted me, and I had to employ all my common sense and self-control to pull myself together. I kept telling myself that I was in no adventure wrestling with ghosts or demons, but the steady Thomas Harker, a candidate for the bar with good testimony and currently an assistant at the law firm of Peter Hawkins Esquire, who had sent me to Count Trans Dracula in Transylvania to finalize his real estate purchase in London. I was also thinking about my fiance, Wilma, 
who had just written her a letter. I had just written her a letter, and as I brought her and her home life to mind, my mood improved and I became composed once more. I began to look forward to exploring unknown paths at the Count's place. As I lit a cigar, the carriage suddenly stopped. The driver left his seat, came over to me, and spread a fur over my feet and knees. He also wrapped me in a pelt coat above the waist and said in good German, Ooh, good German, not that poor shoddy German that the commoners spoke. It's chilly in the mountains tonight, and the gracious Count told me that I should make sure that you would not be cold. There is a bottle of plum liquor under the seat if you need to warm yourself. I thanked him, and he went back to his seat to steer the horses. I was about to doze off when it felt as though the carriage suddenly turned around. This was probably just my imagination, but it felt very real to me. A short while later, I lit a match and looked at my watch. It was a few minutes to 12. I began to remember some of the things the landlady at the end had told me, but I laughed it off, tightened the mantle around me, and tried to sleep. But as soon as I closed my eyes, I heard dogs barking from the farm nearby, and sometime later from another direction, and then again from the distance, until the whole air, near and far, resounding with whining and barking, growing louder as the winds grew stronger. I could not sleep now, the more so as the horses were beginning to stir. The driver calmed them by speaking to them in a soothing voice, saying something to them that I didn't understand. The wind was growing more violent, and nothing could be heard but the rushing of the forest and the occasional hooting of the owls from the treetops. Then a barking came again, followed by a ferocious howling that instantly terrified me. What is that? I asked the driver. It's wolves, sir. Wolves here in the mountains. Yeah, no shit, idiot, he said. They're out tonight, but you can rest easy. To us, they do nothing. The horses, however, seemed to be of a different opinion, as they now were beginning to become unruly, kicking back as if they were afraid. I saw that the driver had to muster all of his tremendous strength in order to keep them under control. The carriage nearly tipped over, which would have been thrown me out to the gorge as I suspect as I was behind, beside the road. I was prepared to jump out to safety, but the driver finally managed to settle the horses so that he could dismount the carriage and approach them. He stroked them and whispered to them, like the horse tamers do, and as soon as they were meek as lambs. The driver took his seat again, and we continued. Not much later, we came out of the woods and were moving alongside enormously high cliffs. There we were, sheltered from the gale, and I noticed that the storm was still building up, and it was not long before the weather became murderous. Ooh, murderous. Uh, it says here in the notes that the Icelandic word is aftakavedur, mostly translated as violent storm, but the literal meaning is murder weather. Oh, I like that, murder weather. Sorry, I just need a sip of water there. The barking from the valley we had crossed was faint now, and the sound of the wolves was much louder than before and could be heard all around us. I was not scared, but I was not at ease either. I wished I had some rifles with me, as I would have liked to give my Wilma two or three wolf furs as a wedding present. Oh yes, how sweet. He wishes he had a fucking rifle with him. 
So we could point it outside the carriage and just shoot some local wolves, 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 um, and then, I don't know what, just right then and there, skin them and give her some furs. Like, that's a fucking crazy thing to think. I had to laugh to myself when I thought of the hunters I knew who would have been grateful to be granted a month's stay in this area. Suddenly, I noticed that the driver was scanning the forest in all directions. And as I watched more closely, I saw something like a bluish flame flicker not far from us in the woods. The driver had obviously noticed it too. He jumped from the carriage and took off into the forest. It seemed that this glimmer was close to the road and I could clearly see what the driver was doing. He was building a chiron. Chiron, note says, a pile of stones used to indicate a border, a path, or a certain spot. The Icelandic expression is mostly used when someone dissolves or vanishes into the night, into the fog, into the blue. It is curious that Harker could still see clearly what the driver was doing in the forest. It felt as if I had fallen asleep for a moment when I realized the carriage had halted. The driver was away longer than had been before, and after a few moments, the horses became restless. This puzzled me, especially as there was nothing to be heard from the wolves. Soon, the horses were so unruly that I took hold of the reins myself and was about to leave the carriage to better handle them. But then the moon came out, and all of a sudden, I saw four, five, six large wolves sneaking down the road with gaping snouts and sagging tongues. In a flurry, I reached into my pocket for my revolver. Oh, he's always packing. At least he's got a revolver on him. But I had to put it in my carpet bag. But I put it in my carpet bag that morning. So I guess that means like it's in the like trunk or something. I had nothing to defend myself with but whip, which I could hardly use as I was having enough trouble handling the horses. Unwilling to sit idle, I yelled, "Hello!" as loud as I could so that it echoed through the forest, and the wolves didn't seem to like it. Then I heard the driver saying something I didn't understand, and when I looked at the side, I saw him gesture to them, at which they shamefully crept away with drooping tails. How could you leave the carriage in a situation like this? I shouted at the driver. We nearly had an accident. I could hardly cope with the horses much longer. I told you, there was nothing to fear, even if the horses are young and inexperienced. I am an old hunter. The wolves will do us no harm. They keep on saying us in italics. You saw how I drove them away. I know how to deal with them. They do dare not attack, attack me. They are, however, much worse things in the woods when it's dark like this. Try to sleep. We will soon be at the castle. Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense because if the vampire wasn't there, which I'm assuming this is Dracula in disguise, then... Yes, they would have done the horses and Thomas Harker harm. Um, yeah, you, you got to stay nearby. I let this be a lesson, and I am sure I must have fallen asleep. When the carriage had halted once more, the moonlight had become clear, and I saw that we had arrived at a large courtyard fenced in by a high wall, which in some places had started to crack. <clears throat> All right, I'll just keep on reading until we get to an hour, just because I am way behind and we're still not even nearly done with chapter one, which is surprising to me. Where does this chapter end? 
chapter ever end? I guess this is what they were talking about in that intro where I said that the, uh, the, this version, the intro version of Thomas Harker even just traveling or being at the, uh, the castle is apparently 60 something percent longer than Bram Stoker's version. So I think that's why in my mind, I'm wanting this to just kind of creep along. I am just turning these pages, looking for chapter two here, and I have not even seen it yet. I just turned a hundred pages in. That is bizarre. Let me find this table of contents here. Not that I'm getting anxious or anything, it's just kind of peculiar. So, wow. Chapter one starts at page 67. Chapter, and it goes all the way to page 243. 67 to 243 for one chapter. And then after that, each chapter is only about two pages long. So that's a huge, huge difference. Um, and must be what they're referring to. So I definitely won't be able to finish a chapter and episode if that's the case. Um, it looks like we'll be going along with chapter one for a while. Um, but uh, that's fine. This is, this is the exciting part of reading an adaptation. So now we're in a new journal entry, May 7th morning. It says here, I will continue where I left off writing about the events of the last few days. Although I have not yet seen it in the daylight, the courtyard of the castle seems unusually large to me. Upon arrival here at the castle, the driver helped me out of the carriage, and again I saw what a hellishly large fellow he was, more than six feet tall and of matching build, but I felt as though he could toss me away like a glove. He took my luggage from the carriage and put it down beside me, ahead of me as was a stone staircase leading up to an ornamental gate. The driver tugged on the bell rope and the sound reverberated in the distance. Then he jumped back into the carriage, struck the horses, and in an instant disappeared through some passageway into the walls. From the castle no sound could be heard, nor could light be seen in the windows. As I stood there, kicking my heels, I considered walking up to the residence by banging up on the door when I heard footsteps from the stone floor inside, and then the gate opened. An old woman appeared, wearing what seemed like a national Hungarian dress, or the attire of some other nation found in the, this region. She bowed, looking at me with a strange smile, which gave me the impression that she was deaf and dumb, as was later confirmed. I can't, I think deaf and dumb is usually a phrase referred to being deaf and mute, um, meaning that you cannot hear nor speak. Uh, don't necessarily think that there's any real association with being dumb or having any kind of um, intellectual disability, uh, I, but I am a bit confused as to what facial expression she gave that gave this whole uh, affliction away. But I didn't take too much notice of her, as I was soon spotted the man behind her who drew all my attention. He was tall and old with white hair and a long white mustache. 
He too was wearing some kind of folk costume, dark and trimmed with galloons. He held an old silver lamp in his hand, and even before I had reached the top of the staircase, he greeted me very politely in fluent, slightly accented English, saying, let's see if I can do it, welcome to my house, enter freely and merrily. Oh, that was great, Anne, great accent. As I stepped over the threshold, um, and let me go ahead and just uh, read the note on that, that welcoming phrase he gave there. And Dracula, it is quoted, welcome to my house, enter freely and of your own will. And then later, welcome to my house, come freely, go safely, and leave something of the happiness you bring. The Icelandic version condenses these formulas. Stoker introduces the idea of a potential victim must enter the vampire's territory voluntarily. So, a couple of notes on that. One, I, one thing I love about the idea of Bram Stoker's Dracula is that this, and I'll get into this in a later episode, these years of lore of like Dracula can't see his reflection in a mirror, must be entered voluntarily into a home, um, it is pretty fascinating. Hold on a second, I have to pause this. Oh, that didn't help. Okay. Um, uh, uh, could be started just by one author. Um, uh, but secondly, I love this original quote, welcome to my house, come freely, go safely, and leave something of the happiness you bring. Uh, I noticed that there's a bunch of <laughs> these like corny signs um, that people were buying on Etsy that were like kind of like the live, laugh, lung signs using that quote. Um, and it just really makes me giggle inside that uh, there's these like like middle-aged housewives like or like blonde college grads trying to decorate thinking that this is a charming sign about welcoming um, when actually it's literally Dracula um, inviting you into his home so that way you can come voluntarily and he therefore has permission to drink your blood. So, on that, dear reader, um, I'm reading my recording, reaching my recording limit on this app that I'm using. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, sign off for the day, um, and uh, we'll continue reading soon. Thank you. Bye.